You're listening to a podcast from St Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. It would be so terrific to have your Bibles or your Bible app still open. So at Acts chapter 26 as we continue in our series. And there's also some sermon points on the back of the news, so if that's helpful, please have a look at those. They're in English, Korean, Dinka, and simplified Chinese. But right now let's pray and Ask for God's help. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the extraordinary good news that Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord. We thank you so much that in your kindness, you invite us to encounter Jesus, to respond to that good news, and to follow Jesus with our whole lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On the very rare occasion when I've been invited to be an MC at a wedding reception, it has almost always been accompanied with the warning, whatever you do, don't let Uncle Billy or Cousin Moira get hold of the microphone because once you give them the floor, there is no telling how long they're going to speak or what they're going to say. Uh, What is for certain, the only thing that is for sure is that from the moment you give them the mic, you have become a passenger in the process. Things are not going to go according to your plan. As King Herod Agrippa II says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Things are not going to go according to Agrippa's plan. Agrippa, well, Agrippa's probably hoping that Paul is going to trip up, is going to indict himself, so that they've actually got a charge to lay against him. But as Paul makes his defence, he's going to do what he always does. He will in some way, shape or form proclaim that Jesus is the crucified and risen Messiah. The crucified and risen Messiah whom Paul claims is precisely whom the people of God have been waiting for all along. Remember the backstory here. Paul is on his way to Rome, but it has been anything but a straightforward journey. In fact, he's only managed about 88 kilometres of the 3,000-kilometre trek because he's been stuck, he's imprisoned in Caesarea for almost two years. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever tried to embark upon a holiday that seems endlessly delayed. It never quite gets going. But at this rate it's going to take Paul about 60 years to get to Rome. But he was determined to get there. Jesus told him that he would be his witness there. Rome, in so many ways, is the natural fulfilment of the trajectory of Acts. As the Holy Spirit propels the good news outward through believers, fulfilling Jesus' commissioning that his followers would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's partly what Rome represents. But so far, it has been a journey filled with a litany of trials as Paul makes his defence over and over and over again. We've witnessed his defence before the mob in Jerusalem in chapter 22, his defence before the Sanhedrin in chapter 23, his defence before the procurator Felix in chapter 24, his defence before Festus in chapter 25, and now we witness his final defence before the crew, before the court of Herod Agrippa, 
in chapter 26. Paul had been actively on the offence against Jesus, but now he's on the defence for Jesus. All the VIPs in their pomp are there. King Agrippa, Bernice, Festus the governor, there's members of the military elite, along with prominent leaders of the city. And they're in a pickle. They can't not send Paul to Rome because he's played the I appeal to Caesar card, but they're reluctant to send him without a charge because that's going to be really embarrassing for them. That's why Festus, at least in part, enlists Agrippa to be involved at the end of chapter 25. And so we see at the end of chapter 25, Festus says, I found Paul had done nothing deserving of death. In fact, that's been the finding over and over again, and indeed it will be the finding at the end of this chapter as well. But he continues, but because Paul made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. What a bother. They've got to send Paul. They still don't have any charges that stack up. So what do they do? They let Paul speak for himself. So picture this. Paul's got all the important people in the room. He's very used to having an audience, of course. He's used to preaching in the synagogue, discussing in the lecture halls, debating in the marketplace. But here, as he makes his defence and he shares his cause for his hope, he does so not through preaching or lecturing or debate, but simply by telling them his story. You know, I think as we seek to follow Jesus with our lives, we can be really so nervous about talking about Jesus. Yet often... Speaking about Jesus, that is being his witnesses, simply involves sharing our story in him. Every Christian story of transformation has three parts like Paul. From opposing Jesus, to encountering Jesus, and now following Jesus. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, well actually there's an invitation to make this story your story too. So let's step through these Three parts. So first, Paul tells his story of opposing Jesus. Let's pick up at verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that is possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Paul wants them to understand where he started from. So back in verse 4, you know, he says, this is no secret, people have known me since my childhood, I'm not only a genuine Jew, but I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Therefore, when I encountered people who proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah... I didn't just disagree, no, no. I did everything within my power to stamp this movement out. I wasn't just convinced that I should oppose them, but I dialled it up to 1,000. When Paul says, I too, there's a little implication here, I too, you know, 
perhaps just like you, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus. He says, but I did. He's not exaggerating. I put them in prison, voted for their deaths. I travelled from synagogue to synagogue. I tried to force them to blaspheme, that is to denounce or speak against the name of Jesus. And I didn't stop there. I even chased these Christians down, even travelling to foreign cities. You know, I'm not like one of these half-hearted Pharisees who disagreed but then did nothing about it. No. When it came to opposing Christians, I, Paul, was the real deal. When I was very first at uh, university, it was actually one of the most intense seasons in which I experienced opposition for being a Christian. Some, not very many, but, but some of those in which I studied really took it upon themselves to attack not only what I believed, but actually attack me because I believed. Now, of course, what I experienced is nothing like what Paul experienced or what many in the early church experienced, nor is it anything like the opposition that many Christians have and continue to experience today. But what is a bit surprising, perhaps, is that as Paul recalls the opposition that, that he dosed out, he's come to see, he now recognises that this wasn't just some ideologically fueled opposition to Christians, but that in doing so, he was actually ultimately, even personally, opposing Jesus himself. Verse 14. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul thought he was opposing some theologically flawed and potentially dangerous sect, when in reality, he was opposing the true and living Lord. Note just how personal it is. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When Jesus says to Paul, it is hard, that is, it is hurting you to kick against the goads, note that a goad was a, a, goad was a type of spike that was used to discipline and direct an animal. And so there might be a hint here that, that even as Paul went around opposing Christianity that there was some sort of struggle of conscience going on inside of him if he was really doing the right thing, if maybe what these Christians claimed was actually true. Perhaps witnessing Stephen's death and his testimony had really left a mark on him. But we just don't know. What we do know is that his unwillingness to investigate the claims and his refusal to even contemplate that Jesus was the Lord placed him in stark opposition to Jesus himself. And actually, this baseline condition was not just true for Paul, but was shown time and time again throughout the Bible that actually since the fall, that's the baseline of every human being. That even though we're made in the image of God, we have a default of hostility toward God, of, of broken relationship with God that we can't possibly fix on our own. We needed Jesus to step in. 
Sometimes that opposition might be really forthright, really easy to identify, perhaps anger, debate, all sorts of things. But actually, I think probably more often than not, we can actually be in a position of opposition to Jesus simply through indifference, of just doing our own thing, of living our own life with no regard for the one who is creator, redeemer and Lord. Some people might think, well, I've never opposed God. I don't even believe in God. But hostility is our condition until we come into relationship with him by simply recognising him and bending our knee to who he is. Of just being real. That he is the crucified and risen Lord. Paul puts it another way elsewhere, saying, you were once alienated from God. You were enemies. But now you've been reconciled by Christ. But Paul didn't remain in opposition to Jesus, but he goes from enemy to friend because he encountered him. So verse 12. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So Paul, by his own account, is going from city to city to hunt down these pesky Christians, but his plans are interrupted by none other than the risen Jesus himself. And as we look at this, there's at least three things that we ought to take note of in this encounter. First, we can have confidence that this encounter was real and that Jesus really rose from the dead. Of course, there are many sources, many places we can go for evidence about the resurrection, but even in this account, we have such strong evidence. This isn't made up. It's not a, a figment of Paul's imagination. It's not a hallucination nor a dream. Not only does Paul describe the experience in physical terms of blazing light, of audible words, but note that it wasn't just him. But it was also experienced by his companions. We all fell to the ground. That might seem like a really subtle detail, but keep in mind that Paul has likely been recounting this story time and time again. It's recorded even three times alone in Acts. If he had just made this up and was insistent on telling everyone, it wouldn't have been long before one of his travelling, persecuting companions fronted up and said, this isn't true. But it's not only that. We can also have confidence because of Paul's radically changed life. He goes from actively pursuing the very lives of those who follow Jesus to be willing to lay down his life in order to proclaim Jesus. The second thing we must take note of is just how deeply personal this encounter is. When Jesus repeats Saul's name, saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It, it conveys, through the repetition of the name, a, a deeply profound and personal dynamic. The risen Lord of the universe knows Paul's name. Even in his rebuke, God isn't just interested in a collective noun, in a group, but he knows and searches out each and every person. He, he calls each and every person into personal 
relationship with him. When we're opposing Jesus, we're not just part of some unknown, nebula, mass of detractors, but we're actually pushing away and we're resisting a personal encounter with the living Lord. Paul wants Agrippa to know that. You know, he keeps appealing to, to King Agrippa personally. It's his prayer for Agrippa and for all the others that they too might believe. Paul is not worried about being freed from his chains, but is concerned with them being freed from their sin and death. The third thing to take note of is that this encounter shows us that Jesus is the source of hope. So back in verse 6, we'll see that Paul identifies that the ultimate reason he's on trial is not simply because he's ticked off the Jewish elite. The underlying reason, the real cause, is because of the hope in what God had promised their ancestors. So some at the time, like the Sadducees, well, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And in fact, Jesus had uh, run-ins with the Sadducees as well on the very same topic. Some thought Paul's claims about Jesus' resurrection were both out of line with Jewish expectation, but also out of the realms of possibility. But Paul says, not only is it foolish to think that God doesn't have the power to raise the dead, but actually the claim of the resurrection is perfectly in keeping and in continuity with what has been promised all along. He said it's nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses have said. That God would send the ultimate Messiah who would die and rise again. And the fact that Jesus was raised is the evidence that indeed he is that very one. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. But because of the resurrection, our hope is fulfilled in Jesus. Everything hangs on the resurrection. If you're not sure about that, if you're not sure what to make of the resurrection, I want to encourage you, you should investigate it. You should weigh it up. Because Paul's encounter was real, personal, and the source of his hope. And the amazing news is that that can be true for us. The same can be true for us today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you might think, well, look, if on the way home today... Jesus appears before me in some sort of dazzling light, then sure, I will believe it's true. Actually, maybe if you're already a follower of Jesus, you think, wow, I wish this had happened to me. But here's the incredible news. Jesus is inviting us to encounter him today. He might not be a blinding light, but it's as every part as real. Jesus is inviting us, he's inviting us not just to know about him, but to know him. We encounter him through his word. We encounter him through the witness of his followers. We encounter him through the power of his Holy Spirit. We're actually being invited to, to stop kicking against the goads, to stop resisting the pull of our Lord and let the knowledge about him convict our minds, our heart, our will our all. About two months ago now, uh, a man by the name of Tridiv got in contact with our church, with St. Bart's. That's a picture of him up on the screen right now. 
Shreve is a, a doctor. He's 45 years old. He's got a young family. And when he got in contact with some bards, he just received a really a, a devastating, a shocking diagnosis. Shreve has been very happy for me to share this uh, this morning as well. At the time, he wasn't a Christian, but he was asking for prayer and he really wanted to know more about Jesus. It was really incredible, such a privilege that as I got to meet with him and chat with him, it was phenomenal just to see his extraordinary openness to Jesus. It was so clear to me that Trudeau didn't just want to know about Jesus in some sort of intellectual way, but Trudeau really wanted to, to know Jesus. He opened up God's word. He opened up in prayer. And then just a few weeks ago, I received a message from him. And the message he told me that he'd welcomed Jesus into his life as his saviour. And Trudiv said to me in his message, he said, I believe. He said, when I left the hospital after being diagnosed with cancer and was given six months to leave, I was searching for answers. I was anxious. I used to find it difficult to sleep at night. Now I feel Jesus' love and him walking with me through this difficult journey. I'm no longer anxious or sleepless in surrendering my life to him. There's no doubt there's still a, a very tough road ahead and I really do hope that you'll join with me along with so many others that we pray that you'll know God's strength and God's healing. God willing, Trudeau is going to be baptised on Easter Day which will be an amazing, amazing day of celebration. But as I've witnessed his response to the good news, how I've been overwhelmed with thanks. I've been so grateful for the good news that we have. I've been so grateful of the good news that the Trinity has received. I'm so grateful that God invites us, continues to invite us to encounter him and put our trust in him and be joined to his purposes. Verse 16. Now get up and stand on your feet. This is Jesus speaking to Paul. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a witness of what you've seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. Encountering Jesus always includes the invitation to follow him with our whole lives. This is Paul's commissioning. Paul is appointed as a servant of Jesus, as a witness of Jesus, to go to those who do not yet believe with the goal that they will open their eyes and see. And in many ways, every follower of Jesus actually shares in the same commission. Of course, it looks different. We're not all Pauls. We're not all apostles, of course. But as we put our trust in Jesus, the invitation is to serve him with our whole lives with the goal that those who do not yet believe will encounter the risen Lord and be brought into maturity in him. I've been so astounded in the, just the mere weeks that have followed since 
Trudeau has become a Christian, that since he has come to faith, his immediate response has not only to, to pour out in gratitude, to keep digging into God's word, to delight in prayer and who Jesus is, but also his, his natural response, without anyone instructing him to do this, has been to get on and sharing his story in Christ with his family and friends. No one's had to tell him that. Every follower of Jesus has a role in God's kingdom. God, in the power of his spirit, takes so much of who Paul is, all that, all that energy, and then channels and transforms and, and shapes that for kingdom purposes. That's what God does. As, as we put our trust in him, he comes into our lives in the power of his spirit that we might keep reorientating our all to him. Now, often that doesn't involve going off in the same way as Paul, of course, but actually living out Jesus' lordship even in the, the ordinary context in which we're placed. In fact, there's no such thing as an ordinary day or an ordinary place. That every task, every situation... Every relationship brims with gospel opportunity. Festus, well, Festus thinks Paul is out of his mind. Agrippa, though, Agrippa seems to understand more of what really is at stake. And so he says in verse 28, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Now, if I was Paul, I'd be pretty tempted to think, Buddy, back in Ephesus, I gave 500 lectures over a couple of years. I've got all those in my pocket and I can give you those right now. But here Paul is. He's not in chains. He's not angry with them. His only hope is that they too will come to believe. And he knows that this isn't dependent ultimately on the persuasiveness of his words from the openness of their hearts to receive the good news. I think that's why he prays as he does. Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Paul knows that every conversion is a mighty work of God. That's why every story the story to be told. That behind every transformation from opposing Jesus to following Jesus is a response to the living Lord who knows you by name. Let's pray. Precious God, we thank you so much that in your kindness we can have an extraordinary confidence that Jesus truly is the crucified and risen Lord. Lord, we are so sorry for the ways in which we have opposed you, that we have resisted and pulled away from your call. We thank you that by your grace, through Jesus' death and resurrection, that we indeed can encounter you and to know you. Lord, please help us to respond, that we might respond in trust, recognising Jesus as our Lord and also follow him wholeheartedly with every facet of our lives. 
Lord, we today especially thank you for our brother Tridu. Lord, we thank you so much for the, the miracle it is that he has come and put his trust in you. Lord, how we so long for healing. We pray that you would pour out your grace in his life, that he might know your strength, your comfort, and your presence. We pray, Lord, that you would equip him and us in every good endeavour, in every place where you have us, that we might point to the good news that Jesus is the risen Lord. And so we pray in his name. Amen. This has been a podcast from St Bart's. To learn more or to take the next step, visit stbarts.com.au.